Um, I've got this folder in my office, and it's been sitting there for a number of years, and it's got a simple title on it, and it's titled Happiness. Why? Because when I look around at our community and our society, if there's one thing that we are fascinated by, it's this idea of happiness. And so one of the things that we've discovered along the way over these past months and years is that each time I've come across a particular um, idea or article about happiness, I've just put another piece of paper in that folder. And over the years, it's been collecting a, a number of different kinds of ideas. And so I thought what we need to do, um, because everyone's offering a different form of salvation out there, including Coca-Cola, what we need to do is talk about this idea called happiness. And if you want to follow with us this morning, just jump back one up and engage with the Bible this morning. If you don't have this U version on your iPhone, put it down, grab it. It's a free app and you can follow with us this morning. Anything we're going to be talking about from the book of John, John chapter 6. It's just a really good app to have with you if you're just, you know, um, in the car somewhere, you want to have kick, uh, sort of kick back and engage like Rob was talking about with, with God, you can do that. In fact, Rob, what you shared just a moment ago was really brilliant and I appreciate you sharing with us this morning. So just jump one forward again for us because what I discover is that everyone out there in our community, in our society, is offering a new form of happiness. So the question I want to ask over this coming five weeks is where is happiness to be found? I think if you were to walk uh, up to someone in the street and you ask them the simple question, what do you want from life? I think most people would say, in some words or another, I just want to be happy. If you said, okay, that's great, that's great, and you press them a little bit further and you said, well, what makes for happiness? I think they'd kind of look at you in a more puzzled, quizzical way and say, what do you mean? Isn't that a given? We know what we're talking about when we're talking about happiness. But actually, the answer is no. Part of my folder collection over these past years has also been reading books. And everyone seems to be saying a similar thing. So what I'm going to be referring to over the next five weeks as we unpack this theme of happiness is a number of different sociologists, psychologists, and, and even economists. What they're talking about, happiness. So if you've engaged with educators like Seligman, Martin Seligman on positive psychology, you're going to be engaging with that. If you've uh, read The Happiness Trap, by Russ Harris, psychologist, I'm going to be engaging with that. If you've encountered Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Traveled, a magnificent from a psychiatrist's point of view, um, I'm going to be engaging with that. Um, I'm going to be engaging with Clive Hamilton, uh, an economist here in Australia who wrote the book Affluenza, because they're all pointing to a similar thing, which is when it comes to understanding happiness, we are incredibly confused. And so this is the series to invite a friend along, to invite someone along and engage and track with us for the next five weeks. And where I want to start with this morning is this place right here. See, I thought, what a better place to start when it talks about happiness to actually engage with probably one of the first commodities out there that can actually sell happiness. There was two things that came out of that, that particular TV commercial, which was, it said, happiness is a birthright which I thought was a bold statement. And the second thing is that happiness can actually be bottled. Did you know that? Happiness can be bottled. 
So I thought, what a better way for me to actually engage with happiness this morning than to actually drink some Coca-Cola with you this morning. So I'm just going to start this off and just, yep, just give me a second. Oh, yep, there it is. <laughs> First thing you notice when you drink some Coca-Cola is that there's all these bubbles, and it kind of dances around your mouth. Do you know that? It kind of just gets you ready for the next thing, which is all the sugar that's involved in these bubbles. <laughs> There's about four teaspoons of sugar in your blood at one time, but in any single bottle of Coca-Cola or any sort of soft drink, there's actually 10 teaspoons of sugar. So if you keep on sipping like this along the way, not only are there all these bubbles sort of happening in your mouth, which kind of gets your body ready for the next kind of thing, which is the sugar kick. So I wait about 20 minutes. If I keep on sipping for a while and there's 10 teaspoons of sugar that's in my system, what happens is I kind of get this, this next instalment of joy because all the sugar that's wrapped around my mouth right now is stimulating the senses on my tongue and they're saying, this is good. So you keep going back for more. Did you know that? Did you know that? <laughs> wow, there it is again. And it just keeps on giving and giving and giving this thing. Because after 20 minutes, did you know that after 20 minutes, what's starting to be secreted from your pancreas is this thing called insulin because it realizes, wait a second, there's this flood of sugar now being absorbed into my blood. So the insulin actually says, we're going to, short, we're going to store all these sugar molecules. It's even making me woo, happy along the way. And, and it starts to push all of these extra sugar molecules into your cells because it needs some place to store them. And that's going to be stored up as fat later on. But that's, that's only half of the good news. Um, the other half of the good news is if I keep on sipping this, in about, mm, it says in about 40 minutes, my pupils will be completely dilated because all the caffeine has been absorbed. And I will be wired, right? Not only is there bubbles of joy happening in my mouth right now. Wow. And, and there's all this sugar stimulant sort of happening on my tongue. So it's kind of like, mm, I want more of that. But in about 40 minutes time, if I keep on sipping this thing, my pupils will dilate and I'll have like the, whoa, I, I'm, I'm here, everyone. Did you know? <laughs> And then in about 45 minutes, it says the absorption will be so complete that it's actually stimulated and secreted in my brain this, this chemical called dopamine. Did you know that? Dopamine. It doesn't make you, well, it does make you a bloke after a while, but dopamine is kind of, it's a neurotransmitter, it's a hormone, and it actually stimulates the pleasure centers of our brain. Yep, there it goes. And... So what it does is that it makes you feel good for a moment. And then after about an hour, once I've consumed this, we know the truth is that with every high, there's a what? A low. So when the low kicks in after about an hour and I start to feel a bit flat, a little bit sad, a little bit melancholy, the good news is I can just reach for another bottle. <laughs> And I start the process all over again. Did you, did you know that's what happens? Yeah. That's just, that's just part of the story. So that's why Coca-Cola can say, you know what? You are opening happiness. And there's truth to that because what happens in your brain is that you get stimulated in such a way that it feels good and you get this rush and you get this kick. And so what happens is the guys, they start connecting. <laughs> and, and they feel like a level of mateship like they've never experienced before because they're happy. And then along the way, guys pick up really attractive girls and girls pick up really attractive guys because 
it's, they've just opened a bottle, a commodity called happiness, and you can engage with it and, and you can drink it down. In fact, did you know that you can have happiness for an entire week if you just reach for the next day? Everyone's looking at me in a somber face right now. But I'm actually really enjoying this. Can I have some more of that? Can I actually this? And so what people are actually saying and what people are engaging with that, that actually know what's going on is that people are saying there is a different kind of fuel to happiness that we need to engage with and understand. What are we meaning when we talk about this idea of happiness? Is it just a momentary high and a pleasure along the way or is it something that's deeper and beyond that? Is there something else kind of going on out there? Because as I see it, this word happiness is a very broad idea and thought that collects a whole bunch of different ideas that encompass positive emotion, momentary highs, moments of jubilation and excitement along the way. See, think about it in your life. Think about the happy times in your life. And I was thinking about this this week. Look, yeah, I remember, I remember there's sporting occasions where I've kicked a goal or I've done something good and you feel this elation, this positive emotion of happiness, don't you? Yep. And, and, and then I remember like when you've done well at a test at school and you go, I'm not sure how I did and the results come back and you're like, yeah. You feel this positive emotion, you're happy. Yeah. And I remember, I remember the first time I kind of uh, said, and the only time I said to someone, you know, I kind of like you, I kind of really like you, I kind of love you, will you marry me? And they said, this person said yes to me. And I remember feeling really good about that. Yeah, that high moment. And then, uh, I remember graduating university and going, that was a high moment, that was a positive, that was a good experience. And then uh, I kind of remember then also getting, getting married after that. And I, I remember having kids. I remember when my kids were born, that was a, an amazing day. But I remember when one of my kids was born, I went for a run that day. And, and, and I remember just this euphoric moment of just kind of gliding over the top of the I didn't feel a thing. I could have run 100 metres in 6.3 seconds. It was kind of felt this positive elation you know and 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 all of those experiences get wrapped up in our english words happy don't they so when it comes to happiness i wonder what it is that makes you happy both those momentary highs but also that more sustained sense of i don't know what you call it well-being of joy of contentment with life because all of the sociologists and psychologists and psychiatrists and even the economists are saying <coughs> we need to understand something very profoundly deep about this idea of happiness because it's not as natural as what you might think. Hugh Mackay in his book, The Good Life, he tells a simple story about a girl, and this is a true story but different name, called Carla. Carla lived in a rural area in Victoria and uh, she came from a well-to-do family. And her mum and dad, they loved her, they recognised her natural abilities, and so they praised her from a very young age. Anything she did well, they would lavish on her praise. Friends might look at the family and say, actually, I'm not sure if you're confusing love with praise. We're not sure if you're confusing support with control, but her parents just thought that she was the apple of their eye. And so they just loved on her and praised her for anything and everything that she did. If she needed anything, they would buy it. If she wanted anything, they would get it because they wanted to create this, this perfect kind of childhood for her to grow up in. When she got older, she graduated 
um, uh, high school, and then she decided that she would go to university. So it meant her traveling down from the, the rural region down to Melbourne, to the city. And so the parents traveled down with her, and they talked with her educators at the time, and they said, now it's going to be a big transition. Um, but we think she's up for it because she's got all of these these great experiences to draw upon and, and they left her and they said goodbye and about three or four weeks later they got a distress call from Carla uh, and the call went something like this I'm not coping with all of the trappings down here in Melbourne could you please come and get me you see the roommate that I'm with she thinks I'm self-absorbed and maybe even arrogant and our relationship has fallen out and I'm wondering if you could come and get me. Mum and Dad, they thought they'd just come down and they said, remember all the trophies that you've got and remember we've put them in your room so that you can, can recall all those good times that you had and draw upon those. And Mum and Dad thought they'd try and fix it by sending her away for a year, maybe dust out the cobwebs, we'll just pay for you to go to Europe for a year and, and then maybe that will sort of fix everything. And it didn't because a few weeks after that, Carla called up Mum and Dad, they came and got her and they took her back home and she wasn't even interested in engaging the job she had before she left and it kind of left mum and dad wondering what's going on you see humankind calls this the utopian complex the idea that if we surround people with enough praise and minimize hardship that is if we give them enough happy moments and experiences then it'll prepare them for happiness in life and what he says is actually it's counterintuitive because you might find that it does the opposite thing to what you wanted it to do in the first place you see what happens with Carla is that she she begins to think that she's the center of the world and she's really special yeah and all that praise that's been lavished upon her and the parents are trying to protect her from all hardship has produced in her a sense of not able to be resilient in life so when there's any challenges that come up, she crumbles. Have you noticed that that's what happens with the, the kids these days? That there's a, such an emphasis upon praise. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed the sporting team prizes that you get? Yeah? Anyone seen that? I remember when we were younger, if you, you won something, so you won something, yeah? That you got a trophy, and the trophy was probably about this big. Yeah? Now kids, they come back from their presentation nights, man, they are sporting trophies that are this big. Yeah. And you say to them, wow, you got a trophy, what did you get that for? They said, oh, this is a participation award. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean? Oh, you know, I, I kind of, um, I showed up. <laughs> what do you mean you showed up? Yeah, I was breathing. So they gave me an award for that, yeah? Have you noticed that schools these days, they give, they give participation awards? Like, what were you doing? I just showed up today. I've got a participation award. Yeah, this is not. I'm not criticising. There's a place for praise. There's even a movement amongst parents out there saying, actually, we want to have football games now without any scores, because we don't want anyone to be unhappy at the end of the game. We want all of them to win. And so what's happening along the way is we're actually encountering this sense of what happens in our community is that in the minimization of hardship and the maximization of happiness, we're producing what Clive Hamilton calls affluenza. And we go to one down. There we go. Uh, Clive Hamilton says this, affluenza, what is it? The bloated, sluggish and unfulfilled feeling that results from the efforts to keep up with the Joneses. Or, he puts it as an economist, the epidemic of stress, overwork, waste and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the Australian dream, which is to have everything and perfectly now. An unsustainable addiction to economic growth. And if there's one thing they're saying that we can learn about happiness, it's simply this. 
is that happiness, if you define it as just a good feeling, is temporary. Just like my bottle of Coca-Cola. It's temporary. And if you try and wrap up your life with a, moment, a series of momentary highs, what you will always do is meet a low at the other end that needs to be pepped up again by another high. And that's how the system works. See, there's two lies when it comes to the whole idea of happiness. The first one is this. It's counterintuitive, but wait for it. Satisfying our desire will make us happy. The first lie about happiness is this. Is that satisfying our desire will make us happy. Let me put it to you in a different way. When we're born, we're born with a wanted machine. What is that? It's simply the desire within each one of us to say, I want. I want. I want. We don't have to learn this. It just kind of comes naturally with the territory. Right? So you take your kid out shopping one day or they're watching something on TV, they'll point to it, they'll even chuck a tantrum if you don't give it to them, is because they want, maybe it's the colour, maybe it's the noise, maybe it's the taste, but we grow up with these wanters in our bodies. And we don't know any more of it, we don't process it any farther than just saying we want something. Isn't this right? So you're walking through the checkout and all of a sudden there's a pointing, there's a crying and there's tears, and really what it's saying is I want and you have a battle as a parent to go do i actually give this child what they want right now to shut them up and save the embarrassment or do i actually am i fighting for a bigger goal left unchecked these wanters can become rampant so when you're older you might just see a tv commercial and you go i want a jeep cherokee yeah. um i don't know i just want one you, you take your older kids shopping and all of a sudden you hear what it's like they've seen something and they say i I want, I want this, I want that, I want that. And at the heart of this is an understanding that if we satisfy that desire, it will make us happy. And fundamentally, it doesn't. I remember the first time my son Jacob got introduced to chocolate cake. Ooh, he was about eight months old, was it eight months old? Six months old? Five months old? It was really young, three months old. <laughs> Is that my dad came over. My dad came over to our place and we were just doing some other stuff. We said, can you please continue to feed our son this healthy food that's in the bowl? Right? So you normally mash up banana with anything. Right? Because it's all it's not solids at that stage, it's all mushy stuff. So you mush it all up, and you can add anything to that. I mean, you can add dirt from outside. It doesn't matter. You just mush it in, and they'll, they'll eat it. And that was the staple diet. But my dad decided we'd actually had something like self-sourcing chocolate cake that night. Yeah? And whilst we were out of the room, he decided to be the responsible grandfather. <laughs> and so what he decided was it was time to give our son solids. And so he took some of that chocolate self-sourcing cake, and, and he gave it to him. I remember walking back in the room. I can still picture it now. He's sitting in the high chair and he's got his bib on and, and he's sitting there and his eyes are like this. <laughs> like, they were wired. It's like, like the pupil dilation thing was happening. I said, and there was all this chocolate around his mouth like this. And I said, Dad, what have you done? And he said, oh, I've just given him some chocolate cake. Right? It's like the Adam and Eve innocence broken thing. I've just seen the airport realize that we're naked there. Yeah? It was like the innocence fact that was broken and his wanted machine just 
kicked into like a hundredfold, right? He's, he's eating this like, and he's thinking to himself, Mum and Dad, you have been holding out on me for how long? What is this stuff? I want more of it. I want that. Yeah, try feeding him banana after some sort of <laughs> You see, what happens is that we're born with wanters. We have these wanter machines. And we think that when we satisfy those desires of the wanter machines, it will make us happy. And everyone's saying no. The second thing we learn about it is that feeling happy is the norm. Russ Harris is really good about this. He says, when we select happiness and say, this is the one emotion that should sit above all other emotions, we set ourselves up for failure. Why? Because happiness now becomes the normal standard. What about other emotions, like grief and loss? What about other emotions like sadness and melancholy? What about reflective emotions? What about ones that sit neutrally? And yes, ladies, men just have a neutral button, that's okay. What about those kinds of things where happiness is not the standard and the norm and you have to make room for all these other kinds of emotions? Feeling happy is just one of a series of emotions that make us happy. Or at least that make us human. You see, what everyone's saying is that we are feeding on the wrong fuel for happiness. Now, I want to get religious with you for a moment. I want to ask the same question of Jesus. Because if you were to ask Jesus, if you were to think in your mind, what is the question Jesus came to answer? I bet some of us would say, Jesus came to answer the question, how can I be happy? In fact, what you discover with Jesus is that he's dealing with people's wanters and their happiness meters all the time, and he speaks into this, but he rarely speaks about happiness. He speaks about something that's deeper. Now, I want to explore that with you now as we kick off this whole series of where can the good life be found. And there's an encounter that Jesus has, and he's just performed an incredible miracle. And if you're there with miracles and you're just checking out God, I wonder if this is true. Even people who criticize Jesus didn't criticize him for the miracles he performed, but the power source that those miracles might have emanated from. And so we pick up this story in John chapter 6, and we have to condense it for this morning, where Jesus has performed a very public miracle. He is from a small lunchbox of a kid. He is, he's prayed over it, and he's fed thousands of people. You might think that's just ridiculous. No one was questioning when they were putting the food into their belly, but he just was multiplying that. And after that had been done, during the night he travelled across the sea and the very next day he was on the other side and the people came looking for him. And this is the conversation Jesus had with them. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, where did you have him? When did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly or truly truly, which means listen up in Jesus' speak. I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. See, what Jesus is, is indicating, just here, what everyone else has taken a few more thousand years to, to figure out, is that he says, you know what, you're following just because you had your bellies full. There was a momentary high. You had your bellies full and you're coming to me for security, you're coming to me for your food, but he pushes them somewhere deeper. 
Don't work in food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. We'll unpack that in a little bit longer. Sir, they said, always give us this bread then. I mean, if this is what it's like, we want, we want to have that bread. Then Jesus declared, so he's going to push this, this idea now, and he's going to push language a little bit further, a little bit deeper. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus pushes them a little bit further. He says, you want to have bread that's going to be sustaining? Look past the bread that spoils. I am the bread of life. Now, I'm just going to warn you, it's going to get a little bit more crazy as the conversation continues, okay? So this is, just hit the warning button. So this is what happens. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How did he come down from heaven? We know his parents. What on earth is he talking about? How can he now say, I came from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jewish people believed that their time was divided into two segments of history, the present day and then the future age. In the future age, God would come and he would reign. He put wrongs to rights. He will judge people according to their acts here on earth, and his reign and rule would be established. And so the last day was that time in which that new age was going to be inaugurated. And they said, how can this person give us something that's more than just physical bread? We know he didn't come from heaven. We know his parents. Okay, now it gets, it gets crazy from here. Jesus goes on, he says this, I am the living bread that came from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is he crazy? Does he want us to be cannibals? And Jesus pushes the metaphor even further, and it gets even crazier when he says this. Jesus said to them, very truly, so listen up, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and now do something very un-Jewish and unkosher, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Has this got a little bit crazy? What is Jesus meaning? Well, the first thing he's meaning is that he doesn't want people to be cannibals. The second thing he's meaning is he doesn't want people really to gnaw on his flesh. What he's alluding to... He said, and I didn't understand at the time, he said, I'm going to give my body to be broken. My blood will be spilt so that anyone who places their confident trust in me as God's son will have a new life abundantly experienced within them. You will come to know my father. A spiritual connection will happen between heaven and earth. You become part of God's family. You will have a new insight into the way in which why you're here and who you are, you will experience life that pushes into eternity. You see, we often think that eternal life has to do with the location. Actually, when it comes to Jesus, eternal life is far less a location and more a vocation. 
It's got more to do with knowing him and experiencing him in this life. And Jesus wanted to push the metaphor so far to get people to think about a different fuel source, one that lasts far and satisfies far deeper than the sugar you get from the bread. And that's when you actually engage with him at a deeper level. And so it finishes up. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. In comparison, the flesh is worthwhile and valuable. God made it our flesh. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit of life and of life itself. From this time on, it says Jesus did such a bad talk, the killer sermon, that says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You know, I want to leave two for you. He turned to his 12, his most intimate friends. And this is the response Peter gave, because he was starting to understand the different fuel source Jesus was talking about. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is just at the very beginning of this series about happiness and where is the good life to be found. I just want to throw out to you one insight to Jesus to start with, just to get us going, is that Jesus believed deep down at the heart of it that he could, he could do a miracle, he could put food in the bellies of, of people's stomachs, but there is something that we hunger for and, and desire that's just more than just bread and water, and that he can actually give it to us. Because he's the one who's come from heaven and has returned back there and has all power over all things. That Jesus is a fuel source that leads to life. The band are going to come up in a moment. And as they do, I want to cause us to reflect for a moment and consider some of these things. Because it's possible to know Jesus, if you like, to sort of follow him and perhaps understand a little bit about him. And maybe you've seen him and some of his miracles take place, but never actually really know him. It's possible in someone's life that they've been brought up in church experience where they've engaged with God, but it's always been through other people. But they've never actually wrestled with these words of Jesus and pressed in so that it's become personal for them. If you like, they've lived off the kind of the fuel source of the positivity and the encouragement and the community, which are all good things around about, but They've kind of been circling around Jesus but not making him the centre. It's possible to do that. So this week, I want to encourage you and challenge you to go on a bit of a journey with us that starts with this week and will stretch over five weeks as we unpack this whole idea of happiness. You might want to pick one of these boxes, one that's relevant for you. Why don't you ask yourself this week, where is the good life to be found? Have you ever asked that of yourself? Ever? 
I mean, if you're checking out God this morning, Jesus is new to you, you're not even quite sure, have you ever sat and actually asked that question? Where is the good life to be found? Second thing I'd invite you to do is to observe your wanta and your happiness meters. What do you mean? Well, reflect at the end of each day about what were the moments that made you happy? And then what did you do when you weren't? Because that'll tell you about your wanta machine. Because what we can do in our lives is that we move from one high to the next low to the next high to the next low. It's not really sustaining, but we're just caught up in it, yeah? You're still a little bit confused? Put it this way. When you're not feeling good about yourself, what's the most natural thing that you want to find yourself doing? I want you to map your highs and lows throughout the week. Ask yourself, is there any substance to the visions that I'm filling and giving my wanter that's going to try and make me? The third thing I'd invite you to do is take that Bible app and why don't you go ahead and engage with John chapter 6, the whole conversation. You can ask about Jesus. Jesus, what do you mean when it comes to giving us bread that might be sustaining life? And then I'm hoping most of us will do this one, just as we embark on this journey. Yeah? He said, whilst you have your bowl of coke in hand, that you will text Steve, okay? This is not a date. This is not asking him to help you do anything. But why don't you take your mobile phone right now and write this down on a piece of paper and text Steve. That's his number. Because we have created five reflections this week that we're going to send to you starting Monday. It'll come to your phone, it'll come to your home, it'll come to your school and your workplace and all those, and it's just a reflection with some questions and a reading of the Bible. So you can follow with us in digging a little bit deeper so that next week when you come, you've already been asking, where is the life to be found? Where is my happiness, Walter, my winter? And you engage. So go ahead, right there. It's back to the screen. Yeah.